This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we're talking about the science behind sustainable ranching with two PhD candidates from Utah State University. I'm Maria Stahl. I'm a PhD student in the Wildland Resources Department at Utah State University, and I will be pursuing a degree in ecology. My name is Will Munger. I'm also a PhD student here at Utah State University. I'm in the Department of Environment and Society, as well as the Climate Adaptation Science Program. So you're both associated with the Dugout Ranch, which is a beautiful piece of property right next to the Needles Districts of uh, Canyonlands National Park. Acquired by the Nature Conservancy in 97, I believe, basically to prevent it from being sold off into bits and also to have a uh, research center as well. Here, we're coming up on 25 years. We're almost past that. So I just wanted to have a bit of a description of the current state of the ranch. How's it operating? What's going on? Things like that. As part of my internship with the Climate Adaptation Science Program, I've uh, worked on the dugout ranch as a cowboy. What I will say about the dugout ranch is something that's very unique about it is the Canyonlands Research Center. This is a research center that supports students from all over the Intermountain West, from Colorado, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico. This summer, they actually had one of their first rounds of indigenous students who have been coming up to participate in ecological restoration and research. This is also a gathering place for a number of different groups, including the group earlier this year, local ranchers, as well as ranch managers from the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, as well as the Diné College Range Club, who came up to learn about the Raramuri Creole Cattle Project, which we'll talk a bit uh, more about today. But that meeting was uh, particularly interesting, and it brought together ranchers from northern Mexico up into the northern plains who are interested in developing more climate-adaptive ranching practices. Now, that would be ranching practices that are lighter on the land and are also cognizant of the changes occurring under a warming climate. And so the Canyonlands Research Center is really an important hub bringing together both researchers, range managers, and ranchers, as well as students like ourselves. And so it's a really unique institution serving uh, Southeast Utah, as well as the interior West. In terms of warming climate and ecological change, you just mentioned the Creole cattle. And these guys were picked up at the Dugout Ranch in 2018, something like that. So they're originally from the state of Chihuahua in Mexico. Can you just go into a bit of history of this breed of cattle? These cattle are actually descended from cattle that were brought over from Spain with Columbus in the 1400s. And this uh, Spanish expedition brought these cows to Mexico and then just kind of let them do their own thing. They didn't really intervene with much selective breeding like we see with Red Angus or other conventional breeds of cattle that we see raised here today. These cattle became really well adapted to hot, dry climates like those found in Mexico. So these are what we call a heritage breed. It's a really old breed that is kind of developed on its own and is well adapted to a particular climate. So as I'm sure the people who listen to your podcast know the Colorado Plateau is a hot spot for climate change. So it's becoming really hot and really dry faster than most other places in the country. 
So this makes the Colorado Plateau really difficult place to be producing livestock in using conventional meats. So if we can bring in this heritage breed from Mexico that are really well adapted to these hot, dry climates, we think that they might do really well on the Colorado Plateau with fewer inputs from ranching. We've seen at the Hornada Experimental Range down in New Mexico, where they've done some more preliminary studies, that they move farther from water, they can have a more diverse, broad diet. They're not just selecting for particular grasses, and they can navigate more rugged terrain than conventional breeds like Angus. So we think they might do really well on the Colorado Plateau because of those traits. So in the um, Hornada in New Mexico, how many years of data or how many years have they been there to, to, to observe the, the cattle? I think they brought them in in the early 2000s, okay. um, 2001, 2002, something like that. So they have many more years of data than we do up at the dugout. And we're using those studies, those preliminary studies, as a way to shape our own research. We see that these patterns are happening at the Hornada, and we want to see if we've still seen these trends of moving farther from water and eating a broader diet on the Colorado Plateau. What are the logistics of studying that? Do you collar the cows and kind of like map out their movements? How do you know what grasses they're eating? How, how do you logistically test if these Creole cattle are more highly adapted to the, to the uh, arid climate? Well, you can't do it alone. That's the major thing. Will and I work closely with Matt Red at the Dugout Ranch and several professors here at Utah State University to answer those questions. We do indeed put GPS collars on these cows before turning them loose. And using the data from these GPS collars, I can build models of which particular landscape factors are influencing their movement. Are they drawn to water? Are they drawn to a particular kind of shrub? Things like that. This is really where uh, research partnerships between scientists and ranchers are really important because um, it takes both cowgirls and cowboys to actually move these cows around the landscape. The hypothesis here is that Creole cattle are eating more browse and shrubs as opposed to just grass. They're moving further from water and able to utilize terrain that's more steep and rugged than conventional breeds could use. When I have been cowboying out there, I have certainly seen some of that, but what we get by partnering with scientists is we get other ways to validate some of that data. Um, so Maria's spatial models are part of that. And another part that we should mention is that we'll take fecal samples while we're coloring them, um, and then we can use genetic analysis to understand uh, what species that they're eating as well. So that's another way we can kind of get a glimpse into what they're doing, as well as just observing them out on the range. We can pair what we find from those fecal samples, so the dietary composition of these cows with the vegetation surveys that I carry out with my team. So this past summer was our first major field season where we were surveying the vegetation found in one particular pasture. So this involves some line point intercept surveys to estimate the cover of certain plants, 
We can also use remote sensing techniques such as NDVI, the Normalized Difference Vegetation Index, to see how much grass, how much shrub cover there is in this pasture at a larger scale. So when we know what plants are in the diets of these cows from those fecal samples, we can actually pair that with these vegetation data to extrapolate diet selectivity. So what are the cows eating and how do those things match? And are you, are you also, I mean, the, let's just call them normal cattle that are on the ranch. I assume they're like an Angus or something. Are you also monitoring them? The red Angus that have been on the ranch for um, several decades now do have GPS collars on them. And so th there is some monitoring of their, their spatial movement. And really what we're trying to understand is, is there a difference between these red Angus um, and these criollos? So um, those are kind of the two sample populations that will be compared in the study. Okay, cool. So we have 20 red Angus collared and we have 20 criollo collared. So an equal sample size of each of the breeds that we can compare in all of these different metrics of movement, fecal samples, et cetera. We're focusing on one particular pasture called drill pasture. That's all native vegetation. We have very fine GPS data on this pasture. So every 10 minutes, um, and that's where we're focusing our vegetation studies as well. If we're able to, you know, we leave these collars on year round. So we can use the data from year round at these other pastures that Will just mentioned to get a broader idea of their movements year round. But we're really concentrating on this one particular pasture. Do you have any results that you could share yet? Or is it too early to, to really say much about what these Criollo are doing? I have some preliminary data from a master's student who was working on this project before I was. And this is a few years old at this point. I don't have, I haven't analyzed any of the data I've collected yet. Um, but when I built some spatial models last fall with these, these older data, we didn't see a whole lot of spatial partitioning between the two breeds. The, the areas that the Angus were using were kind of the same areas that the Criollo were using. And there's a couple of reasons why we think this might be, and Will might be able to speak to some of these, but the Red Angus herd that is here at the Dugout Ranch, as Will mentioned, it's been here for... I believe the Red Angus are, are a couple decades old and they, they used to run a different breeds back in the day before the, the Reds took over the operation. Okay, so decades of years old, which means that they really know the landscape. They're really familiar with the best patches to graze on. Whereas these Criollo, they're not as familiar with the terrain. They might follow the Angus around the pasture. We got five new Criollo, brand new from the Hornada this past spring to, and put some collars on them. And I'm really curious to see if those five Criollo behave any differently than the older Criollo, the Criollo that have been here for longer. And if there is, that suggests that there is some sort of learning curve happening on this pasture. I think one thing that is really important to point out here is that the, the reason that these cattle might be more climate adaptive, more light on the landscape, lighter of foot, um, is that they're ranging further from water. 
And why that is important is that um, cows have a tendency to hang out around water. It's shady, it's cooler, there's better forage there. But if cows left to their own devices are just sitting on the creek bank, you can see some real degradation of riparian conditions. And this is the importance of having cowboys and cowgirls out on the range constantly moving these cows um, because you're able to take advantage of what we call spatiotemporal heterogeneity, which is a fancy way of saying there be feed in different pastures but it also helps with riparian conditions. And so there is a human element of helping to move these cows out on the range that lessens their impact on the environment. That's why folks like uh, Matt and Kristen Red uh, received the Range Stewardship Award from the BLM is because they are constantly out there um, helping these herds lighten their impact on the range and encourage um, the regeneration of the good range conditions that we want to see out there. Uh, they're also breeding together as well. So being able to kind of split the hairs on this um, is going to be a challenge. And this is why spatial models and, and GPS and um, fecal samples really help us um, have another data source on there. But um, I think the main point here is that we need to be developing cattle genetics that are locally adapted to ecological conditions, as well as have really active range management out there um, to really get the best uh, of both worlds. So, so they're breeding together. Um... Yes. And, so, and, and, and the reason why that would be important is that um, if we can get some of the behavioral characteristics of the criollas, they're, they're moving further from water, they're taking advantage of uh, browse and shrubs as well as grasses, but get some of the carcass weight of an Angus, then really you could potentially hit a sweet spot. Now, we don't know that for sure, but that's the gem out there if we can find that. Some of the studies out of the Hornot experimental range suggest that that's how it's gonna work. If we can crossbreed Angus, for example, with these Criollo, we'll retain some of those beneficial traits, but we'll have larger calves that reach weaning weight um, a little faster, but we have not yet looked into that here at the dugout ranch. That's one of the things that is upcoming. Yeah. Criollo obviously are, are smaller in size in general. Is that correct? Um, yes, they, they are um, smaller in, in their carcass size as well, which presents some real challenges to producers who'd like to adopt this uh, because our feedlot and slaughter facilities are set up for a certain set of cattle parameters having smaller size carcasses presents some challenges in terms of marketing ability. So um, there's a much larger study underway under the Southwest Sustainable Beef Project that is looking at not only uh, the cattle genetics and range performance, but also supply chain issues throughout the whole system. And that's really important when we're looking at how we do climate adaptive ranching in the Southwest is we have to look at that systems perspective. The, the calves that are coming off the ranges in this area are going to other operations and there, there's a flow in them. And so we have to think about that overall flow um, and where we can make interventions in that system to increase overall sustainability. Well, if we talk about marketing, how marketable is the Criollo in terms of its taste? Well, let me put it this way. So I, I, I hunt as uh, well as uh, ranch and uh, the meat that comes off a wild range um, is more flavorful because you have all these secondary plant compounds that are part of what the animal is eating. 
And so there certainly is a marketing opportunity, probably first in pretty niche markets, but to, to really take advantage of the flavors of the Southwest, um, the secondary plant compounds. And there are some kind of niche marketing opportunities happening in, I believe, New Mexico right now, um, particularly looking at this Criollo. But I've been saying for years, we need a, a Miltz Criollo burger, and uh, maybe we'll get that one day. Miltz, if you're listening, let's talk. What is the end game? Like, in other words, how many years are you going to look at this particular set of experiments you've set up? And what would you do next? If all goes to plan, we'll have three years of data collection. So that means three seasons of having these cows out on this one particular pasture, drill pasture, and following their movements with GPS collars three seasons of collecting vegetation data from this pasture, et cetera. Now, last year was a particularly dry year. So the forage on the range was pretty low quality and there wasn't much of it. So we didn't get nearly as much GPS data as we were hoping. That being said, we may extend this project a year or so to be sure we have enough data to really draw the conclusions that we want based on this project. I think the next step is to share what we've learned and in, engage with and inform producers in the Colorado Plateau of what we have done, see what questions they have. We're already having dialogues with producers all over the Colorado Plateau and just figuring out how we can scale this up, how we can get more Criollo on the landscape if that needs to happen, if we realize that that will really help the range condition and the health of the ecosystem while still allowing producers to run their operations sustainably. I think another thing to bring up is that with the challenges associated with a warming climate, th there's no one silver bullet to the issue. There's not going to be one thing that saves us. Um, so it's really important not to think of the Criollo as some fantastic technology that's just going to solve all these issues. And the important thing is that we have long-term adaptive management and monitoring of these interventions. So we really understand what is the long-term impact of Criollo and our current grazing management strategies. Um, and really that involves deep partnerships with producers, um, deep partnerships with scientists and local land managers to understand, particularly what I'm interested in is why are people adopting climate adapted uh, practices, whether that is Criollo or whether that is beaver reintroduction and watershed restoration, whether that's um, you know, particular restoration techniques that are being experimented with at the CRC, um, that sort of adoption of innovative practices um, isn't guaranteed by any means. And what the research shows is that producers learn best from other producers. And so having an operation like the dugout and the CRC that allows ranchers to learn from each other, I think is a really important thing to consider. I grew up raised as an environmentalist, and I've seen a lot of different approaches to environmentalism. I think that there is a school of thought that you got to just get in conflict with people, um, get up in their faces and tell them how they should live their lives and I think that there's some real drawbacks to that approach. And I think that there is kind of an emerging sense of we all need each other and we're all in this together. And then we better figure out ways to collaborate together. And I just really want to nurture and uh, uphold the people that are, are doing that sort of work because it's not easy all the time. But I just don't think that we can really uh, write people off or leave people behind, particularly people who have generations of connection to the land and are also producing food that feeds a lot of people. Collaborations between 
between ranchers and producers and scientists has a lot of opportunity. I'm excited to see more young people get involved in that. And I'd point to things like the Kavira Coalition's Young Agrarian Program that are bringing people who don't come from a ranching background to have real world ranching experience and see what it's like to produce food out on the land. Um, And I think we need a lot more of that. And so if there's young people that are interested in getting involved in ranching or restoration, there's just a lot of resources out there and we need your passion and we need your hands and we need your brains and hearts. So get involved and let's get going. Will and Maria, I really appreciate you talking to Science Moab and telling us all about the work you're doing down at the dugout. Really, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. This has been really wonderful. Great talking with you. See you out on the range. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.